Good afternoon. Welcome to Hudson Institute. My name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here. And I want to uh, thank you for coming to this afternoon's lunchtime panel uh, titled, Does Putin's Move on Syria Make Russia the New Middle East Power Broker? I believe that we have an especially timely panel this afternoon, uh, not least because the president, uh, the American president and the Russian premier spoke yesterday at the UN General Assembly. And we're going to talk about uh, some of what was said yesterday. And we're also going to have a, um, a larger overview of what's happening in the, in the Middle East uh, with the Russians, with the United States, and also with the Iranians. But we're also going to, um, we're also going to look uh, at Russia's general play as well. Um, I, wanted to, um, I wanted to introduce our panel. First, uh, to my uh, immediate left is uh, friend and colleague Tony Bedran, a research fellow at the uh, Foundation uh, for Defense of Democracies. And Tony is, uh, Tony is a, a top analyst, not just of, uh, of Syria and, um, and the Levant, but also, also Iran. I think that some of Tony's insights into the uh, Iranian nuclear deal and the negotiations have been really, really important and really foundational. I know they have been, uh, I know they have been to me. Um, to Tony's left is Hannah Thoburn, a, uh, also a, a fellow here at Hudson Institute, a new colleague, and it is a, a pleasure to have Hannah on the panel. And um, she will be speaking. She's a Russia expert, among other things, and she'll be looking uh, in particular at, uh, at um, Putin and Russia. And to her left is um, Mike Duran, a senior fellow also here at Hudson Institute, and uh, I've had the uh, pleasure not only to have uh, Mike as a friend, but also to be on many panels um, speaking um, uh, about many things, including and especially uh, Iran's position in the region. And I think that today we're actually going to get a chance between <coughs> Mike and Hannah and Tony, we're going to get a chance to look at the region in a sense uh, as it's expanding <coughs> now that Putin has made his play in the Middle East. I think that the region is becoming uh, more dangerous but all, and, and larger. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to ask Tony to begin um, to, uh, to just give some introductory remarks. Tony? Thanks, Lee, and uh, thanks uh, for the Hudson Institute as well. I'm uh, very happy to be here as always. And um, I just want to uh, very briefly hit on two points that are, I think, of, um, of importance when we're discussing uh, Putin's intervention in Syria, um, namely... Uh, the, inter the interplay between this intervention and U.S. foreign policy on the one hand, um, and the second point is uh, sort of the how it tips the balance in the region, and specifically with regard to um, uh, the balance between Israel and Iran in the region, uh, especially. Um, we saw a lot of the commentary yesterday after the president uh, and uh, Putin spoke at the U.N., that uh, that there was somehow a showdown that they you know that they were they were at loggerheads and they were taking swipes at each other and and so on and at least that's how the interpretation of the president's speech was in most of the commentary. Uh, I actually uh, uh, take uh, take issue with this with this approach and I don't think that's the case. I think actually that uh, uh, if you go back to the very beginning of the Syrian uh, uprising. Um, and monitor how uh, President Obama has approached the Russians on the one hand and approached uh, the pressure from U.S. allies, European and regional, um, towards intervention in Syria, 
you will see a consistent pattern whereby the president has always used Putin in a way, I mean, of course, Putin would not agree to this formulation, but it's a useful one, I think, as a proxy, as a foil, to um, sort of always maintaining a parallel line to Putin to make sure that he could uh, foil any pressure from uh, European and uh, uh, Sunni regional allies. Uh, so, for instance, going back to the earliest days of 2011 and 2012, when when the pres when um, the the group, the Friends of Syria, was formed, which was supposed to be a support group to the Syrian revolution that bypasses, in a way, the UN Security Council uh, or any objection uh, from the Russians about moving against a, a, a former Soviet ally in, in the Assad regime. Uh, it was the president that insisted that any action and any movement had to pass through Russia. So he, in a sense, sabotaged the friends of Syria by using Putin. And this continued. The relationship moved uh, forward, as you know, most, most clearly with the, nuclear, with the chemical weapons uh, fiasco, when, again, pressure mounted on the president to intervene in Syria. Lo and behold, Putin comes in. There's a deal, uh, a deal that, again, re-legitimizes Assad and... Um, uh, and frustrates everybody else uh, in the, in the uh, former sort of or traditional U.S. alliance system. Leading up to this point, I think this is kind of the logical uh, trajectory of this dynamic. And I think that uh, contrary to what m most commentary has suggested, uh, the move that Putin has done in Syria right now fits actually very seamlessly with uh, President Obama's objectives in, uh, um, in, in Syria. The president has, if you also track back again, going back to 2011, the position of the president on the fate of Bashar al-Assad, you will notice a an, an initial ambiguity and ambivalence that never went away. In fact, incrementally from 2011 to 2015, you have seen the White House position unmistakably move the goalposts towards accommodation. Now, this is all... You know, we, we'll talk about this, I guess, uh, further in the, in the discussion. This is all, I think, and Mike uh, has written the seminal article on this, that, that this is all a subset of the president's approach toward Iran, whereby touching an Iranian, a central Iranian ally was off limits. And I think that's the case here, too. But the, the, something I really would like to uh, leave you with here is the extent of the overlap between Russian... Uh, assets, the moving parts, the, the actual pieces on the board of Russia and Iran, they overlap. So if, if, the United, if, if uh, President Obama agrees to a forceful Russian or, or, or turns a blind eye, let's say, to a Russian forceful uh, intervention in Syria, it at the same time serves to protect Iranian assets in Syria as well. And this is where the last very quick point regarding Israel, I think, uh, also where the president uh, sees this as a net positive. We go back in 2013 uh, when the Israelis were striking, in 12, when the Israelis were striking targets in Syria, and the White House kept leaking all those strikes that, uh, that, the, that the Israelis were targeting Iranian assets in Syria all the time. And, uh, and the Israelis were all, you know, flabbergasted about it until the White House ultimately bragged about it, about uh, how they kind of undercut uh, the Israelis uh, in, in uh, an Israeli military option, but also in, in terms of their strikes in Syria. 
And I think the idea was that we can put Israel on a leash vis-a-vis -vis Iran in the region. And the fact that now you have a Russian position, military position, on the coast between a NATO ally and a NATO member state and a NATO partner, that could potentially, or that has at least forced Netanyahu to go and negotiate with the Russians. So at least in theory could potentially constrain Israeli activity in Syria, which is not targeted against Russia. Again, it's the overlap. They're targeted against Iranian assets in Syria. If that also manages to constrain Israel, then it fits perfectly with his uh, overarching regional, um, regional vision, which is, uh, really can be summarized with one word, Iran. So I'll leave it with that and then... No, Tony, that, that, that's great. Thanks yes. very much. And, I, and before we do move on, I just want to, um, I just want to underscore, because I, I do believe that what Tony's saying, and I believe that the case, um, one of the cases that this panel will make is a little different from what a lot of people you're probably hearing, insofar as you're uh, hearing a lot of analysts and journalists talking about how, as Tony started off, uh, the president and uh, Putin are... are uh, are at loggerheads over Syria. And I want to underscore that I think that one of the cases that we will try to make here is that, no, they're actually very much aligned in different ways. And so, uh, I, I, thanks, Tony, and we'll come back to that. Um, Hannah, if you, could, uh, if you could follow up, thanks very much. Sure, and my thanks to Lee for putting this panel together. I'm gonna focus real quickly here on three points uh, that are all gonna be uh, centered around Russia. Uh, and the first I wanna uh, talk about really is what is Putin's major goal? In, in doing this. I think we, we've been focused a lot here in the U.S. on the issues that we see on the ground in Syria. And uh, we take it a little bit for granted, I think, that when Putin says that he's interested in fighting ISIS, if he's interested in fighting terrorism, we tend to take him at face value. And I would actually argue that that's perhaps a concern, but certainly one of his lesser concerns. To my mind, Putin's major goal is this, to restore Russia's rightful position as he sees it in the international security order. If you listen to his speech yesterday, I thought it was very interesting. He opened up with a, a very interesting story about 1945 and the, the post-1945 security order. And he did it very uh, <laughs> snarkily by, by mentioning that it happened in Yalta. Of course, he didn't say it, but Yalta, as we know, is located in Crimea, which uh, Russia recently annexed. And it was a way, in, in essence, of essentially pointing, pointing out to everyone that, look, I have a vision, I have an idea of where I think Russia should be in the world, and that I, I really think that you should take me seriously. The United States right now is not the, the one with the leadership. They're not presenting a plan to go out in Syria. And I'm going to be the one who, who actually puts something out there. He also mentioned the Soviet Union a lot in his speech. And he, he mentioned just the other night in his 60 Minutes interview with uh, Charlie Rose, he again talked a little bit about how much he thought that the end of the Soviet Union was really this sort of great geopolitical catastrophe. And I think a lot of people in the US perhaps hear that remark and they say, oh, he's an old communist. He wants to continue the old communist ways. But to my mind, he's actually lamenting the downfall of the Russian Empire of a time when Russia actually had a, a strong place in the world and it was considered in the same breath as the United States. And I think that's really what he's trying to recover. So this brings me to point number two, 
which is something that I think has also been a little overlooked here, is the connection between Syria and Ukraine. He wants to restore that position in the world. But unfortunately, after everything that's gone on in Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea, uh, the continued presence of Russian troops in eastern Ukraine, both the Europeans and the, the United States have Russia under sanctions. He's been excluded from the G7. He's been put really on the outside of the conversation. But as time's gone on, you see the Europeans and the U.S. slowly forgetting that something ever happened in Crimea, that uh, there's still fighting going on in Ukraine. We talk a lot about the Syrian refugee crisis, but not at all about the 2.2 million Ukrainians who've been displaced from their homes. And by presenting the world with this option, this, this Putin-esque option in Syria, he's essentially asking people to forget that Ukraine ever happened. You need me to fix this problem, this problem that's sending all these refugees into Europe. You need me to fix this problem that's endangering the security of your allies in, in the region. And in return, I do think that he's going to ask for, a, for a, a, perhaps a lifting of the sanctions on Ukraine, but uh, he's essentially trying to say, look, here I am. You need to take me seriously. And that, which is point number three, the U.S.-Russia relationship, uh, we've seen the U.S. really back down. The U.S., despite the Budapest Memorandum that it signed as, uh, to assure Ukrainian sovereignty in 1994, has not pushed back against what Putin did in Ukraine. And it seems as though we're not going to push back now in Syria. And to my mind, you really are seeing Vladimir Putin essentially win the game. He had a very weak hand of cards at the beginning. But like Lenin said, uh, because you always have to quote Lenin on the panel, it, it, right? Here, here, here Hudson, Particularly absolutely. here, I thought. My, Mike's going to quote Trotsky after this. <laughs> Please do. There, there's a lovely, well, nothing that Lenin said was lovely, but there's an interesting quote from Lenin. He essentially, to paraphrase, says, if you have a bayonet, you keep pushing until you hit steel. And to my mind, Putin is pushing and pushing that bayonet, and he hasn't hit steel yet. And I'm not sure when exactly he's going to. Uh, but in the meantime, he's played that very weak hand of cards very, very well. And we now end up in a world where I, it looks as though Europeans are going to line up behind this new, this new axis of Iran, Iraq, Syria, Hezbollah, and Russia, uh, which, of course, helps him fulfill, fulfill his major goal, the restoration of Russian power. Hannah, thanks very much. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about the, um, I think especially your, um, your take on Ukraine and Syria is really interesting. That's kind of the way that the Iranians have worked as well. They've said, let's negotiate over this. And also there's all of this behind it that we want to settle. And the administration has certainly played along. So it seems that Putin is also a very careful observer of how things are, of how things are going. Um, and so thanks very much. We'll, we'll come back to a lot of that shortly. Mike, if you could, uh, if you could continue. Thanks. As uh, Trotsky said, you, <laughs> you, may, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And uh, this is what I think uh, yeah. President yeah, Obama really is, uh, is he, learning. He really, he really had one. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yesterday, um, uh, yesterday, the day before, uh, David Rothkopf in uh, uh, foreign policy uh, it must have been, it had to be uh, yesterday, didn't it? Because it was, it was, uh, it yes, was President Obama's speech. He, he summarized uh, President Obama's speech at the UNGA um, <laughs> as follows. Good morning, cupcakes, unicorns, rainbows. Putin is mean, 
Thank you very much. <laughs> and I, I think that is a uh, I think that is a pretty good uh, summary of the um, um, of the speech. Um, and it's interesting to me that uh, Rothkopf, as a kind of barometer of Washington opinion, um, has come to the conclusion that uh, President Obama's approach is uh, um, is giving Vladimir Putin enormous opportunities to change the balance of power in Europe. In the Middle East, as um, uh, as Hannah and Tony said, um, uh, to the disadvantage of the um, uh, of the United States, the um, the disconcerting thing to me is that this shouldn't be new. Uh, I mean, the Washington consensus has been it's been a long time uh, in coming, uh, and yet I think a lot of us um, for years now have been have been saying this, uh, and it has been ignored to, to this uh, to this moment. Um, and on, on top of that, the, the troubling thing about it is that uh, this state of affairs, whereby um, the Russians are changing the balance of power against us, the Iranians are changing the balance of power against us, <coughs> this is very much a product, as I see it, of the Iran deal. Uh, this is not an accident. It's not an accident that, uh, that Russia and Iran are cooperating together militarily in Syria immediately after um, uh, after the Iran deal. It's not an accident that we get an intelligence-sharing relationship between uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Russia immediately after the, um, uh, the Iran deal. Um, it's, not an, it's not an accident, and it's not an unintended consequence. I totally agree with, with Tony about that, and I, I can't underscore this point more. This is, the, this is the direct consequence of President Obama's vision of the uh, new Middle East order. Not, not just the consequence, this is the realization mm. of his vision of, uh, of Middle East order. The logic was very simple, and it's been there from the beginning if you've watched the president closely. The logic is, I, Barack Obama, want to pull the United States back from the Middle East. The game in the Middle East is not worth the candle. I'm going to go down in history as the president who ended wars, didn't start new ones, Right. That's what the whole. This is what the cupcakes, unicorns, rainbows. That's what the. Uh, that's what the speech was all about. The speech hovering over that speech was the ghost of George W. Bush's foreign policy, mm -hmm. and President Obama was saying, "I have. I owe America. I owe world. I have offered you an alternative to the militaristic foreign policy of, of George W. Bush. I've given you one of American restraint, and it's a better world than the one uh, uh, than the one you had." Now, he hasn't, however, been totally upfront about what that, what that vision entails. And I, I agree 100% with, uh, um, with, with Tony on all of this. The, his view of Middle East order is a concert system with Russia and, and, and Iran. He knows that if he says that out loud, that I see Iran as a partner for Middle East stability... I see Iran as a partner for fighting ISIS. I see Vladimir Putin, the guy who's destabilizing the Ukraine, as a partner for stability in the Middle, in the middle East. It'll be completely unacceptable uh, acceptable politically in the United States, so he doesn't say it. He just does it, and then, he pre and then he gives us speeches about cupcakes and unicorns and so on. And people on the right focus on the words that he says, and they attack him for saying these words and say, he's naive, he's silly, and so on and so forth. He's none of those things. He's clever. He's clever, he's intelligent, and he has a strategic vision that he has not announced clearly. Uh, and what we need to be debating, I think, is the merits of that, um, of that strategic vision. Uh, 
the uh, interesting thing to me about um, uh, Putin's move is that he chose to move in Syria. Uh, he did it for a couple of reasons. Uh, uh, obviously, Assad is his client. Uh, exactly as Hannah said, he, uh, he wants to hold on to Russia's great power status, and he already has a position there um, in, the, in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, but also, and this is, I think, absolutely crucially important for an American audience, Syria is the center of gravity of the conflict in the Middle East. It's a completely unimportant country in terms of its resources. Uh, it, it is a complete, it's a, it's, it's a complete mess politically, obviously. It's a, a potential quagmire, uh, absolutely. But it is the center of gravity where the fight over the regional mastery is taking place. The, co the, the regional coalitions are fighting it out over Syria. And so by the application of force in Syria, uh, uh, Putin has changed the balance of power, not just on the ground in that conflict, but in the region as a whole. Um, and so you, if you noticed in the weeks leading up to the UNGA sp speech, there was a, a parade of Middle Eastern leaders went to go see Putin, right? Including, including, uh, including Prime Minister Netanyahu of, uh, of Israel. Uh, why? In order to deconflict with him, because he has put down the marker to everybody that he's the guy who is, who, he, he is the power to be dealt with in the region. And notice it wasn't an application of that much force. It's a, the, 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 the increment needed in order to change the balance is not that great. But the, the, Amer the United States has announced that it is no longer in the, in the hard power game in the way it was in the past. And he has seen, uh, Putin has therefore seen an opportunity uh, to show everybody in the region that he is, and everybody is, um, uh, is, uh, is taking note. Um, and as Hannah said, it's not just everybody in the region, it's also the Europeans, the Europeans as well. One of the remarkable things to me in the last, uh, uh, in the last few weeks since the end of the, since the, uh, the signing of the Iran deal is the extent to which the Europeans are gravitating toward the Russians on the Middle East and therefore, as Hannah says, on everything else, uh, on everything else as well. Uh, 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 Angela Merkel is now saying openly, we need to work with the Russians and the Iranians to stabilize, uh, uh, to stabilize Syria. And that brings me uh, to my last point, which is the worrying aspects of uh, President Obama's strategic vision, as I, uh, uh, as I understand it. Um, and I'll just put it this way by noting the European response. The European response is absolutely pathological, right? Europe, Europe is being inundated, is being inundated with refugees, a, a large portion of which are coming from Syria. It is presenting, Putin is presenting it this way, the U.S. press is presenting it this way, and the European press is presenting it this way, as a consequence of, of, the, uh, of, the, of ISIS, Right? We have to solve the ISIS problem in order to solve the refugee problem. The refugee problem is not, an, is not as a result of ISIS. The refugee problem is a result of Putin, of, um, of Assad, with the support of the Iranians and the Russians, uh, uh, annihilating his own cities, right? using his air force to, to, to destroy the major Sunni population centers in Syria. That's the source of the, that's the, source of the refugee problem. Helping, uh, helping Russia or supporting Russia and Iran as they prop up Assad doesn't solve the, the, uh, the refugee crisis. So it's completely muddled, it's completely muddled thinking. It's a, in order, what, what the Europeans are now saying is that in order to solve the problem that we're confronted with here in, uh, uh, here in Europe, we have to support those elements that are creating the problem. Right? But that is a direct consequence of, 
<coughs> President Obama's strategic vision, because he's taken us out of the hard power game in the Middle East, or he's pulled us back from the hard power uh, game in the Middle East. So the only player to whom you can appeal now is, is, uh, 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 is Vladimir Putin. Um, and as, um, as Hannah said, it's helping him, uh, it's helping Putin not just get support with his Middle East policy, but also getting, uh, uh, getting support ultimately for his, uh, uh, for his Ukraine problem. Um, and I'll make one last point on this with regard to President Obama's strategic vision. Um, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to work in two ways. Number one, it will not solve the problem that we have. It's not going to solve the ISIS problem. This is only going to exacerbate the, uh, uh, the ISIS problem because we're supporting, we are supporting ultimately through Russia and Iran on the ground. We are supporting or, or allowing them to support uh, horrible, vicious, Shiite, sectarian actors that are killing Sunnis wholesale. Uh, as, long as, that's, as, as long as that's the option that we hold out for the Sunni powers, they're, they're not going to give us the support that we need against ISIS. And without the support of Sunni powers, we can't solve the ISIS problem. And then uh, lastly, this is very troubling because uh, we live in a world uh, in which our adversaries are starting to cooperate with each other uh, uh, against us. We're, pre- we're closing our eyes and we're not, we, we are not recognizing that what the Iranians and the Russians are doing together is a move against the United is a move against the United States. President Obama lives in a world in which there are not friends and enemies. There are problems, uh, and there are problems, and problems have to be solved. So we talk. We have to look for solutions to problems, and in, and once we define the define the, the challenge that way, then we look for partners for solutions. And so he lives in a world where uh, where where Putin can be a partner for a solution in Syria um, while he's problematic in the Ukraine. Uh, and so we'll put some financial sanctions on him in the Ukraine, but we'll still partner with him in, uh, in, in, the, uh, uh, in, in the Middle East. In the vision of Vladimir Putin, there are friends and there are enemies. And the enemy, the rival, is the United States. And he's trying to build a coalition that will chip away at the power of the, uh, of the United States. We're powerful enough right now that that chipping away, we don't, we don't really notice it. It doesn't bother us that much. But if push comes to shove and we have to go to war, a serious war somewhere in the region, we're going to suddenly find out that the, the power that we used to have has evaporated and it has migrated to the coalition that wants to cause us harm. And we should, we should spend a little bit more time thinking in sort of 19th and, uh, 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 20th and 19th century ways because they still, those ways of uh, conducting foreign policy still exist today. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. That was great. Um, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, when you're saying when you said that the the president has really uh, hasn't fully articulated his worldview, I mean, I think he was hinting at that a bit yesterday in his speech at the UN uh, General Assembly when he was talking about our our alliances, our new alliances. I think he was suggesting or hinting at an alliance with with Iran, which is as close as he's come to that. Um, and I guess the question I had for you, since you since you kind of threw down the uh, through down the gauntlet since you said we need to debate his strategic vision. Okay, why is this, why is it wrong? The, the, you're talking about the, the refugee crisis. It's not going to hit our shores. Certainly not the way it's hitting European shores. And if the president is saying, look, who needs the hassle? Bush got us entangled in two different wars, one in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, neither of which we managed to have very clear strategic goals for which maybe the United States should not be fighting foreign wars anymore. So let's let, hand it off to Putin. If he wants the hassle, 
If he wants Syria, let him have it. What is the problem? Uh, what is the problem? I'm, I'm going to come back and ask this of the two of you as well in different ways, but if you would start and say, what is the problem with, this, with the president's strategic vision? Well, the, the, the problem is, first of all, uh, it's not going to... Let, let's, stipulate to be, let's stipulate to begin that the, the entire Middle East could go up in flames tomorrow. Everybody there could die, and, and life in the United States would go on pretty much as it, uh, pr- pretty much as it is, right? So uh, there, we, we, we might have certain problems and, and so on. But what I'm trying to say is that the United States has an enormous amount of tolerance for the suffering of people far away, right? Because we're an island nation. So if we're, if we're waiting, if the argument, if the argument mm-hmm. is that, um, that you know, none of this is going uh, to affect us, well, it's really hard to think of any scenario out there where it's gonna, right. where, where where life in New York is gonna grind to a halt because of what's what's happening. Right. But they are horrible. They are horrible things for the people there. Number number one. I mean, there's an enormous amount of human suffering as a uh, as a result of this. Um, and number two, we have we have very significant interests. And at a certain uh, at a certain point, I mean, you have to conduct foreign policy with the thought of what happens in the worst case scenario. In the worst case scenario, if I have to go to war, if I have to send American troops into battle, am I am I best placed in order to in, in order to carry out that uh, uh, carry out that uh, that mission? And we are we are systematically destroying or undermining our own allies. We are we are systematically um, eliminating points of power that we had around the region, and we are we are creating allies and alliances that are working against us. And we are pretending by talking in terms of problems and solutions and interests, and not in terms of alliances and alliance goals. We are pretending that that's not happening. So in a in a in a uh, 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 just two more quick points. Okay. So in in extremists, we're going to find out that we're in a weaker position. And this, the second thing is. We can also see that, look, this kind of thinking is not new. That since the civil war, the Syrian civil war has gone on, the president has said to us effectively, you know what, okay, right now all the other actors in the, in the arena, they're not doing what they should be doing to solve the Syria problem. But when the, when the pinch hits them, when they see how small, you know, I, I understand this has to be a political solution. We have to have a political process. The others don't see it that way. But when they really start to feel the pinch, then they'll work with us for a political solution. But that's not what's happened, right? Oh, and they're also the, the idea was we can contain it. We can contain the problem in Syria uh, so, that it doesn't, so that it doesn't get worse. First of all, it hasn't been contained. We've got, we've got millions of refugees that are putting pressure on the surrounding countries. There's going to be a ring of hatred around Syria for generations now, which is going to foment more and more, uh, uh, more, and more uh, instability. We could have a destabilization of, of Jordan. That's not an, the destabilization of Jordan is not a fanciful thought. Right now, right? If, de- if Jordan is destabilized, do you think the United States is not going to go in? If Saudi Arabia is destabilized, again, not a fanciful thought. The, the, the Saudi Arabia, with all of its oil resources, the United States is not going to go in militarily. This cannot be stabilized this way. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I think that's a very good question. Would the United States go in? But certainly, we've seen this administration make a number of different cases. The United States needs to get off a war footing. It's not our problem. So. I, I don't know. What, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, and we can, um, if we can elaborate this a bit further, what are the interests that would compel the United States? I mean, I think they exist. I think they're real. That would compel the United States to change course and say, actually, Syria is a big problem. It's not just the humanitarian issue. 
it's a strategic issue as well. Let's say ISIS, ta ISIS, uh, uh, ISIS carries out an insurgency in Saudi Arabia, destabilizes Saudi Arabia. You have the world's largest oil reserves under, uh, under, under ISIS. I, I think in, in those circumstances, the United States would not sit back and do nothing. Right? So uh, that's, that's, the, uh, it's, uh, uh, that's the kind of situation where I'm saying we're not, we're not creating a regional order that is, that is um, uh, in giving, empowering others on the ground so that they can look after our interests. It's not putting us on a non-war footing doesn't mean just pulling out, creating a vacuum, and saying that whatever happens there is the best of all possible worlds. Putting us on a non-war footing is building up allies on the ground who are capable of looking after our interests so that if push comes to shove, we have to do something with American forces. We have others on the ground who will fight with us. But in the best of all possible worlds, they'll take care of our interests without us right. having to do anything. Tony, did you want to? Uh... Well, I mean, Mike mentions the scenario of an ISIS doing something. but. But there's another scenario as well. I mm -hmm. mean, it's a scenario that we just saw recently in Kuwait, for instance, right? When there's an IRGC cell that was doing, uh, preparing uh, for attacks in Kuwait, um, possibly in Bahrain soon enough or already, uh, possibly IRGC guys uh, now moving under Russian protection to move long-range rockets and, uh, and, uh, and other capabilities uh, to threaten Israel. But as Mike says, once you stop thinking about friends and enemies and allies and alliances systems as a value in and of itself, uh, and you start thinking in different categories, then clearly this doesn't matter anymore, right? So it becomes a, a second order issue, something like one step removed from, because we have come in the United States in the conversation about national security and American interest. We have come to define these things after 9-11 increasingly narrowly and uh, much more so as a counterterrorism, mm -hmm. through a counterterrorism prism than through a classic uh, sort of national interest in foreign policy and strategy terms. We have, we, and, this is, and this is a, dim, a diminishment, and this is also a, 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 um, an angle that this administration has very consciously cultivated, especially in the Syria case to define it as a counterterrorism issue and not as a broader You mean issue. regarding ISIS? Regarding ISIS, that. regarding an attack on the homeland, regarding... So, the, so we've come to think of strategic problems as somebody placing a bomb somewhere to, to go off somewhere. As opposed to... As, as opposed to uh, sort of uh, an, order, an order that guarantees, uh, obviously, security, economy, cooperation, as Mike... The, the kind of things that Mike was talking about. Um, and I think, I think that... I mean, clearly Putin is looking at it still that way. The president can come up and lecture and hector about old ways and 19th century uh, phenomena, which is exactly what he had said in 2009. I mean, he's talked about it specifically in those terms, that the balance of power among nations cannot hold and will not hold. Yeah, I mean, that's very nice. Uh, Putin just said, yeah, I'm sorry, that actually does very much hold. Uh, so we may not think like that anymore, but all the other actors think like that including our allies who are looking. I mean, the Israel case, since I mentioned it in my opening remark, is a good, is a good, and Shmuel uh, Rosner has actually a very interesting piece today on this, uh, on this issue, because he says, look, it's not that the first time that Israel and Russia had been at odds in Syria or in the, in the broader neighborhood, right? I mean, we know it. We've seen it in Lebanon in 81. We've seen it in 67. You know. So 
The difference in all of this is that now Israel is doing this on its own, whereas in the past it could rely on the United States, and in fact the United States saw it as a net positive against the Soviet bloc in the region and a way to humiliate the Soviet bloc in the region. So it was... so. That ally was an expression and a reflection of American power in the region and the ability to block what we consider to be bad actors uh, and, and rivals from encroaching on uh, sort of the American sphere and our friends. But if you stop thinking in those terms and everything now becomes, you know, Islamic terrorism, this, you know, Al-Qaeda, this, a bomb to, you know, violent extremism and whatever, completely disconnected from classic nation-state issues and, and balance of power, that's where the conversation leads. And I think, and, and I think that's kind of a broader, uh, 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 like I said, diminishment of the broader uh, level of discourse about strategy and the national interest. Well, let, let, me, um, let me ask Hannah something. As you were talking about, you know, you were talking about Israel's place in the region uh, regarding the Soviet Union. Look, as many people have said, uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia is not the Soviet Union. Right. Is that, and, and even then, there were lots of people, uh, including various American policymakers, who were worried about the fall of the Soviet Union. What is wrong with the idea of a balance of power or a concert system in which Russia, Putin's Russia, plays a part? Is it just that he is a reckless actor? Is it just that this is our legacy that we're supposed to take, up, take care of? Or what's wrong with, let's say that we're putting forth the idea the administration is not uncomfortable with its role in Syria, with Putin's role in Syria. What's wrong with that? I mean, is it okay for who is, why is Putin a problem? Look, I think we, you know, we really need to look at all of the other things that go along with Putin being involved in a certain area. Uh, here at Hudson, we have a, a very, a really wonderful kleptocracy initiative that actually looks at the way that uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia exports corruption throughout the world, uh, the way he, he, he uses international legal systems, the way he uses offshore accounts to push that dirty money out through the rest of the world and, and create influence that way. Uh, there's also the, the propaganda and the media question. But, you know, one thing I really wanted to, to get to and to follow up on, on Tony is to really look at what this means for the transatlantic relationship. Essentially, in... in creating this option in Syria, Putin has said to Europe, look, the United States doesn't have a plan. They have no option. And your only option is essentially to follow what I say. If you want to get rid of all of these migrants and these refugees and you don't want to have to deal with the problems. And it forces the, our European allies to look at their, their foreign policies and to look at themselves and say, okay, so this seems to be our only option. That means we're going to weaken our relationship with the United States. The United States is going to turn to itself and say, OK, we now have France and Germany cooperating with Russia on this question. How much do we actually want to engage in intelligence sharing with these countries? It's essentially a, a very smart way for Vladimir Putin to drive a wedge in between the transatlantic relationship. And you know, I, I mentioned earlier how, how Putin was talking about the 1945 Yalta conference. And I think it's important to to look at the, the moves he's made in the past two years. And to my mind, he essentially wants a new yeah. Yalta agreement. He wants the, the international system to take a new 
a new version of, of Russia and to take it into account. What, what does this new system, ideally, from Putin's perspective, what does this new uh, system look like? I think it would mean the destruction, uh, at least the tacit destruction, of NATO. I think it would mean perhaps the, the failure of the European Union. I think those are things he'd like to mm -hmm. see. Whether or not they actually happen is a different question. But he's essentially saying to, to Europe and to the United States, look, this is my sphere of influence. That's what he's doing in Ukraine. That's what he's doing in Syria. And you need to step back and uh, give me my room. He wants to go back to the Yalta conference when the, the great powers sat down and they hashed it out. They hashed out what the world was going to look like, and that's just how it was. But, the 1940, but what happened in Yalta in 1945 was important to build this system that we have that's kept, generally, a peaceful Europe. And that, you know, this is why they, they gave the Nobel Peace Prize to the European Union just a couple of years ago, which seemed silly, and I still might laugh at it a little bit. But it, it was important to say, look, something good here has been accomplished. It's a greater security framework, just like, just like you mentioned. It's a greater security framework, and we shouldn't just look at these things in isolation. We have to think about them in a larger strategic framework. Just a, uh, just a couple of follow-ups. I mean, like, one of the things, how it diminishes U.S. power, for instance, including the type of power that this administration lauds as the smarter types of power. Mm -hmm. So let's say sanctions, let's say, using, using the uh, financial tools, for instance. I mean, Putin and the Chinese are effectively working to set up an, a parallel alternate structure through which they, the ability of the United States to punish people financially is diminished. So that, I mean, so the idea that you can somehow separate these things and, you know, well, that's kind of old 19th century displays of power uh, militarily that doesn't really get you anything. But there are consequences to uh, when you, when you uh, betray friends or not come to their uh, aid and so on. There are consequences for when you want them to cooperate with you on other things. I mean, the NATO issue is another thing. I mean, look, specifically in Syria, look how we have treated the NATO state bordering Syria, uh, Turkey, right? When it was assaulted by Russian systems, uh, in, uh, when a plane, uh, a Turkish plane was shot down by a Russian system, probably operated by Russians, uh, uh, over the Mediterranean. The United States and everybody in Europe, incidentally, maybe short of the French, uh, everybody wanted Turkey to just swallow it and shut up yeah. because we do not want to interfere in Syria. The Americans don't want to touch Syria. So uh, that you get assaulted by a Russian anti-air uh, missile, mm. sorry. It's just, so again, it undermines that, it undermines that relationship uh, as well. Um, go, go ahead. Mike, yeah, we're like, uh, I think we're in the situation of the third generation of people who build big businesses, you know? The first generation <laughs> builds the business, the second generation expands it, and then the third generation drives Maseratis and snorts cocaine, right? And tells themselves, and they tell themselves that, uh, that, that they, they tell themselves that this Maserati that they have is somehow a consequence of their, uh, of their genius. That, when actually like the Maserati Trotsky. is built on the hard sweat uh, the sweat and toil of granddad and dad. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the first generation built, uh, uh, fought World War II, understood the, uh, understood the consequences of not having allies, of having taken themselves out of the, uh, out of the great power game, 
uh, and tried uh, you know, to set up a, a world system that would, um, that would um, ensure that they didn't have to do it again. The second generation built, uh, built that system out. And now the third generation is going around telling itself, oh, wow, we don't need all that, all that hard power because we have these really cool financial sanctions that will impose costs on, on people, who do, uh, people who are out there with, a, with an antiquated, great power, a hard power, uh, uh, hard power mindset. Um, it, it's terrible. The, the amount of leverage that we have, that we have snorted up our nose uh, <laughs> uh, in, the last, in the last year alone is amazing. And I'll, I'll give you an example of, uh, uh, of what I'm... Me. I, I'm am I mixing my metaphors? <laughs> you, can't, you can't snort leverage. No, no, it was, they, a, good, uh, it was a good mix. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, take, for instance, take, for instance, the French. Right? When I was in the White House, the French were our absolute best allies on anything to do with Iran nukes, and also our best allies, our best allies in Europe with regard to the Syria question and with regard to the, uh, uh, to the Lebanon question. Um, for, what, for whatever reason, there was a group of uh, Quai d'Orsay officials who uh, wanted to keep, keep France in the hard power game in the Middle East. Now, it was important because, one, it gave us a European ally that thought like we did about these, about these questions. But they also played an enormously important question. France is one of the big three in Europe. They played an enormously important role in policing the European Union uh, and keeping the European Union vectored on these hard power questions. Uh, and then President Obama came along. He made the deal with Iran uh, right, and basically announced to the world that the United States is, isn't in this hard power game anymore with respect, to, uh, with respect to containing Iran. And we undermined all of those elements in the French system that had been doing this enormous work for us, uh, uh, for us in, in, in Europe. We did it to them twice. One, one, we did it on the Syria red line, because you'll remember that, uh, that Hollande went out uh, and stood with President Obama on, uh, on uh, mm-hmm. conducting Sorry. attacks against uh, Assad in Syria for crossing the, um, the red line uh, against his own public opinion. I mean, he really went out on a limb, and then he looked very silly when President Obama went back on his red line without even notifying uh, Hollande ahead of time. And then secondly, we did it with, with, the, uh, with the Iran deal, because we put the French, who had been, uh, who, who had been uh, tough on the Iranians and had been slowing us down in terms of making concessions to them, we put them in the unenviable position of making President Obama angry because they were trying to put the brakes on him um, and being put in the back of the line for lucrative contracts with the Iranians. Uh, so uh, why? Because, in, because with respect to uh, the Iran question in, in Europe, the, the Germans see it almost, almost entirely in commercial terms. They want those contracts from the Iranians and that's it. And the Germans aren't in the hard, hard power game at all. Why? Because we took them out of the hard power game after World War II. Uh, and, and the British, the British had two major reasons, two major factors uh, influencing them. One was alliance maintenance with us. So if we said we're going to get tough with Iran, the British would say we're going to get tough with Iran because they wanted to keep us happy. Uh, and like the Germans, they had, they had commercial interests. Once President Obama said we're out of the hard power game, the British and the Germans were, made a beeline uh, for Tehran, and the French were left looking like suckers. And that we, did that, we did that to them. When we wanna, if we want to get back in the game, if we decide, oh, you know what, this risk that we took, President Obama in his UNGA speech said, we, we great power, we powers, we, we were so big and powerful, we should be taking greater risks. The risk that we're taking 
right? The risk to the United States is not with U.S. It's not with it's not with U.S. lives. It's not with U.S. money. It's with other people's lives and, and other people's money. If it really goes if it really goes badly, right? We're gonna it's others that are gonna pay the price. And if we turn around and say, oh, you know what? It did go badly. We better go back to the old way of doing things. The French that were helping us are not there anymore. We destroyed them. We pulled the carpet out from under them. Yeah. But look, the, I'm so, uh, <laughs> Tony. No, go ahead. Well, if you want to follow up, because I just want to follow up on the concert. I, 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 was, gonna, I was just going to try to, look, because you said you want to, and I totally agree with you, debate the worldview. We know in many ways what the administration's argument is, right? The administration's argument is, yeah, fine, but what you're talking about didn't work. Look at what happened. The Iranians were still on the verge of getting a nuclear weapon, and we pushed back. We're managing their re-entry I mean, into the false. global system, and that's, I'm sure, what they're saying with Russia, too. It's like, they want Syria? Pfft, let them have it. Mm -hmm. we're, ma we're managing their re-entry, or we're managing their position in the uh, international <clears throat> system. It's like, because to manage these positions through war, it's too costly, and frankly, it just doesn't work. Look at what happened in Iraq. Look this at what happened like, in Afghanistan. This is like this I'm is just like saying this is their argument. This is like so a businessman. Okay. This is like a businessman going uh, taking a mafioso as a partner, and saying, you know what? I'll give you half my business, and you come in, and after you get after you get uh, used to uh, uh, to profits to profits uh, won by an honest <laughs> day's work. Right? Then you're going to stop your mafioso ways. I mean, that is the but argument, th right? That, that is their that, that, that's, that's, but that's not, the argument. That's the argument. That's exactly the argument. Right. But that's not, how, that's not what's going to happen. We're going to give the mafia half our business, right? And they're going to continue their mafia, their mm -hmm. mafia ways. Because Iran, you know, it's funny. The, the people who don't think the way we do, the way I do, they, <laughs> yeah. uh, they, like to, they, always, they always like to point out that the Iranians are not that strong. Right? Look, they they're 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 right. they're they they have they can yeah, they can that support the conventional military. They, they yeah, they're they're, they're an impoverished third world so. country, no conventional right. military, so on and so forth. Speed exactly, boats. exactly. That's exactly <laughs> who they are. So why are you thinking they're going to be a solution to your problems? Right? They are they are uh, uh, they are blackmailers. Right? That's what they do. They are the they are the guy that says if you don't pay me if you don't pay me. Uh, uh, this month, I'm going to put a brick through your window. You want to? You, I'm going to. I'm going to torch your shop, right? That's what I'm going to do right. if you don't pay me. That's how they operate, and that's who we're doing business with. And we think they're going to transform themselves. They're not going to transform themselves. Oh, but the, idea, but the idea. It's very similar to the Russians, by the way, as well. Yeah, well, I was going to say. I mean, the idea that somehow this is a diminishment of Russia. Okay. Prior to summer of 2015, Russia did not have a military base in the Eastern Mediterranean. Post-summer 2015, Russia has a military base in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean. I don't understand how you see that as a diminishment of Russian power. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible, right? Who's going to take them out of the Eastern Mediterranean now? I mean, that... So I'm going to choke them to death by feeding them the Middle East. By hugging them? <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. More and more they're here to yeah. take Lebanon. But, but, this, but this goes to a point that, that Mike raised, the idea of the concert system, right? The concert system is the biggest fallacy of all time, right? Because there is no such thing. It never works as a concert system. It always works as competing coalitions, okay? The idea that somehow, like, everybody wants to do the, the European, the idea of the European concert system, and you wrote about this, the European concert system happened on the carcass of Napoleonic France, okay? You defeat a coalition, comes in, defeats the revolutionary power, then establishes a hegemonic coalition that governs it, right? 
In this case, you have two coalitions. You have the one that Putin is building, Russia, Iran. And this is what I said, the overlap of assets. Everybody mm -hmm. was talking about these guys are going to be at each other. We can balance them against each other. They're using the same chess, uh, the same pieces on the game board. Okay. Who is? I just want to the make the Russians sure this is and clear. The, the Russians okay. and the Iranians. Right. When Russia has to go to Syria, it has to go through Baghdad airspace. Mm -hmm. Okay, that means through Iranian territory. When it sits down in 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 Syria, it has at best two thousand crew members, half of whom are not actually combat. So the perimeter that's defending them, okay, is defend is manned by Iranian assets, okay. When it, so the, and what it's there to do in Syria is to prop up an Iranian asset so that the Iranians can continue to smuggle weapons to their other asset in Lebanon under the protection of Russian air defense systems that will curtail Israel from targeting them. So the notion that somehow these two are at odds is just silly. They're working with the same pieces. There's, there's total overlap. So, the, so that's one coalition. And the other coalition is the Saudi and the Turkish coalition, mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and the Turks, right, and, 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 their, and their allies. And they're fighting over, over Syria. Now, the, in, this, in this thing, the, the, the Obama uh, administration comes and says, no, you got you guys, you got to all come together and, and, and kind of talk this out and, and, and find a solution. Uh, but the way it has behaved, unmistakably, is to side with one coalition against the other coalition. I mean, it's plain to see. This is how it, so, so we're in the position whereby I was talking about you, the Russians and the Iranians using the same pieces. It's the same pieces that the Americans are using. Mm -hmm. okay, that's in fair. Iraq, we are using Qasem Soleimani as our ground troops and his militias. So now the Qasem Russians are, Soleimani, the head of the, the, head of, the, Quds, Quds, of the Quds Force, I'm sorry, yeah. So that now the Russians are saying, yeah, listen, we have now a joint intelligence sharing center with Baghdad uh, and we're going to bring in the Syrians about it too to fight ISIS, and you're welcome to join. I mean, so the United States is going to look silly because you're working with the same people anyway, right? right. That, and so, so we haven't... So in, in fact, I would say that Putin's move in Syria really isn't first and foremost about Obama at all because Obama's no. in the bag. I mean, he knew this in 2013, plain and simple. The move here is to twist the arm of Turkey and Saudi Arabia with the help of Obama so that he can have what Obama will call a concert solution, whereas in reality, it's a victory of one coalition over another. I, 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 I just want to ask Hannah a uh, question. Tony was talking about the other, the, uh, other coalition, mostly Saudi Arabia and Turkey. I mean, I mean, Putin has tried to move closer to the Saudis, hasn't he? Or what, how, and to how, the Turks as well. Okay, so how will this affect? Is it affecting it at all? Is, is Not that I've yet seen. Uh, we, you know, the, the folks who have been flying up to Moscow in the past weeks have not necessarily, they've been Qasem Soleimani. You've seen uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel fly up. Uh, there hasn't been nearly as much movement, I believe, I guess Erdogan, on the I mean, Turkish Erdogan front. Was there Erdogan was there ago, with, right, about a week right, ago. Right, okay. And I would, I would also presume that the, this has something to do with it. Right. But look, the, the Russians have been growing closer to the Turks quite steadily over the past several years. They have increasingly uh, strong business ties. Uh, the Turks are moving, well, Erdogan in particular is moving towards a Putinistic style of governance, a uh, much more autocratic kind of system. And they seem to have, uh, an, they, they seem to want to... Everyone's a supreme leader these days. Everyone is a supreme leader these days. But I, I think in, in the Turkish case, particularly in Erdogan's case, he seems to be interested 
in attempting to balance Europe with, with Russia. Uh, and he also wants to be a big player in that scene. And I think what you end up with is in, in Syria now, you have a gigantic mess and what, 10, 15 different actors and they're all moving pieces and they're all put on the same chessboard or the checkers board or battleship or whatever fun game you, uh, analogy. Pardon? Whatever board game you prefer. Whichever board game you prefer. Uh, there's about 15 different moving pieces and I think the danger for miscalculation by any one of those participants, whether it's something you know, as small as the Al-Nusra Front or uh, something as large as, as the French happening to bomb the wrong uh, encampment, I think that the danger of miscalculation on any of these sides is extremely high. Mike, did you want to? Uh, I, yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to argue with Tony about one little uh, pedantic point. Uh, he, he said that uh, he said that uh, that this isn't about Obama, uh, uh, Putin in, in Syria. And I, I I take the point, and I, I know what you mean. And, and you're, I think in terms of the immediate game, you're right. But I, I I do think that he's thinking about. He is thinking about as as, uh, as I understood Hannah to be saying. The balance of power between between Russia and the United States. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And he's picking up. He's like a guy. He sees Obama. Obama's announced, "I'm out of the game." That's right. Right. Yeah. And, and I like you, play. And so he's he's you know the shop the 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 the, the, the shop is uh, door is wide open and he can run in. He's that's got right. eighteen months to loot. That's, right? exa that's exactly. And he's right. going to pick. He's picking which 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 things to grab. Can I ask and the Russians, I, by the way, say that. I mean, well, this, uh, an analyst always. Uh, quoted Fyodor uh, Lukanov. Yes. So, so he was. He actually said it very openly. He said, "Russian influence is directly proportionate to the retreat of American influence." I mean, it's ha, just, ha, uh, uh, you said eighteen months. What happens after eight? Uh, uh, let me ask this question of all of you, Tony. Why don't you go first? What happens after eighteen months? I don't know. Between you know Putin and and whoever's whoever in office. In, whomever, I don't know. I mean, that's that's look. Everybody. You now, said before. Yeah. You said before, and I know that you and I have talked about this. Look when. <laughs> the Russians now have a base in the Eastern Mediterranean. What, what does it, it's a very steep cost, it seems to me, for any administration to try to push Russian troops out of Syria in that way. So I want to know, like, what, what's your sense? What happens? But th I mean, that's the whole point, right? The idea is what the, the, next, the next administration is going to have uh, a challenge that, by the way, was intentionally sort of designed by this administration to tie their hands as much as, boss, as possible, to lock in reality. It's not, it's not a coincidence that Obama comes up and talks about, um, you know, that he, Rouhani, and Putin, all three have something in common in their uh, UN speeches, all talking about a new order, mm -hmm. all of them. Rouhani says the Iran deal is a way for us to affect a new international order. The president talks about the culmination of, of the previous 70 years of old ways, and now with the Iran deal, this is how you do things, and yep. this is the new way of doing things. And Vladimir Putin, as Hannah mentioned, uh, with the new Yalta, or, or, or everybody wants to, to, to start a new, a, new, a new order. And they've done a lot of moves, created facts on the ground that are going to be very hard to turn around. And I'm not really sure, I mean, so the, it's a tall order as it is for any president, and for the new president to come, he has to have a vision uh, and the resolve to pursue that vision that is that goes back to these old balance of power games uh, and, 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 to, and to commit American resources to rebuild. It's funny because, you know, the idea of the Obama presidency was to rebuild alliances. 
And now we're really going to have to rebuild alliances <laughs> yeah. after the yeah. okay ironic. because they don't they don't they don't exist anymore. I mean, look, the Saudi lesser powers are going to be distrustful, but they're all going to run to an American president who says, "Listen, I am back in business, and we're going to set this restore this thing, and we are going to really push back against the Iranians." Which, by the way, as Mike said, isn't hard to do. Really, I mean, you can do it. It's a very doable thing. But it requires a commitment of, uh, first on a strategic level and, on a, on a, and then on a, a resources level. And I'm not sure yet if the political environment right. in the country or among... Right, I imagine the, that's going to depend a lot on that. It's not yeah. just going to be the... Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, l l let's go through, and, and I'm going to ask both of you to answer that. Hannah first, then you, Mike. Then I'm going to open up the floor for a few questions. We'll see how much time we have. And uh, but in the meantime, Hannah, if you would say, like, so, okay, so... If Putin perceives it as some sort of a 18-month-long uh, uh, fire sale, what, you know, what happens? What happens over the next 18 months, or what happens when those what 18 months after? are finished? Well, well go because ahead and I, I, answer that as well. What no, I, I think what, what happens after the next presidential election almost depends entirely on what happens yeah. over the next 18 sure. months. It's nearly impossible to predict that without starting to think through what next steps Vladimir Putin or, or the uh, Iranian mullahs or uh, any other person who wants to get in on the game, China perhaps, might want to take. Um, and, you know, I I'm, can't speak for, for the Chinese. I can't speak for the Iranians. I can take a, a best guess at, at the Ukrainian or at the, the Russians. But, you know, I would expect much of what's the, the, the same, much more of the same. You know, I, like I said, there's this you keep pushing until you hit steel, and there doesn't seem to be any kind of a backbone there. There doesn't seem to be any kind of a, a desire to, to stop the, the bayonets as they continue to push and push. Now, whether or not Putin thinks that he's in over his head when it comes to having both Ukraine and Syria on his plate, uh, you know, that's a, a question I'm not sure that anyone besides Mr. Putin himself can actually answer. But if, if he is interested in taking more land, there's certainly other opportunities, Kazakhstan, perhaps the Baltics, Belarus, maybe Moldova. If he's interested more in influence, then he has other levers to pull. You know, you think, think about Ukraine here for a second. Yes, the violence has started to recede, but let's not pretend that that doesn't mean that Mr. Putin doesn't still have uh, a great amount of influence over what's happening there. They're about to have local elections, and he has several political parties on the right and the left in his pocket. He still has the corruption tool. He still has the propaganda tool. There's a lot of different things that you can do to change hearts and minds, as well as the realities on the ground without using brute military force. It's this sort of new hybrid warfare that people like to talk about a lot when it comes to, to Russia. Do I expect to see other moves? Yes in the next six to six months? Probably not. Uh, he tends to like to let facts on the ground settle in, and then he'll, he'll make his next move. You saw after Putin moved into Georgia, he waited a good long while until he made his next move. Mm -hmm. After what happened in Ukraine, he's again waited a little while, about a year and a half, until he's making his next move. But I think the reason he chose to make the move now is because precisely of what Mike's talking about, this, this sort of uh, abdication of American leadership in the region. So we'll, we'll see. But as you, as you say, it sets up a very difficult uh, reality for whomever the new, new president is going to be, whether they be Democrat or Republican. 
if we want to rebuild those, those alliances, whether it's with the Saudis or the French or the British, uh, it's going to be a very heavy lift. Mike, do you want to... Uh... I know what Putin wants. I know what he wants because I'm a really good mind reader. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how he gets it. What 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 he wants is higher oil prices, right? Yeah. He does have. He has an econ, he has an economic problem, and the simple solution of the economic problem is to raise oil prices. And the address for raising oil prices is Saudi Arabia. And if I right? can just interject, fact for the for the moment, the Russian budget balances at about ninety dollars per barrel of oil. A barrel of oil is now about forty seven dollars. So there's, they're about at half of what they need to be for the Russian budget to balance. Right. So he wants, he wants to get the oil prices up. And, but I don't um, – uh, my crystal ball goes a little bit fuzzy after that because I can't figure out how – he's just made a – you know, as Tony so eloquently put it, he's, he's made a, um, a power move in support of the Iranian alliance in the region, which is against the Saudis. So how does he then get the Saudis to raise, uh, to, to raise oil prices yeah. with him? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe through. I mean, can't can't you do that through? I mean, uh, destabilizing different uh, different assets in the region. I pa mean, whether the Saudis want to raise pa it or not, and pa the Iranians would be happy to have that. Yeah, well. I mean, well, he can he, already. The, the Iranians just signed a 21 billion dollar arms agreement with him, so he's going to get some money through mm. the through some of that 150 billion dollars that the United States has freed up for the Iranians, yeah. which is not going to do anything <laughs> but, but build roads in Iran. Fix there's like, there's a, some of it is going to go Only right. Only if they in, stop in, chanting death America. Yeah, yeah. you can't create jobs. No, you can't, you can't create jobs yeah. that way. But then, uh, if they stop, there'll be plenty of jobs. <laughs> yes, you can, because who else is making those flags that you got to burn? <laughs> the, uh, the, other, the, other, uh, the other thing about the future, uh, you know, if, if a Republican takes the White House, we like to tell ourselves that it's all going to be turned around very quickly. Um, but the, but a, a, as Tony said, President Obama has changed the game board considerably. And I, I, very few Republican candidates are really owning up um, to, um, to the magnitude of the challenge to get back to something like where we were in terms of the leverage that we have over, over everybody else. So it, um, uh, a president can turn it around, absolutely, but it's going to be an incremental and very lo uh, a, a, a long and hard climb. Um, do we? Ha I think we have someone with a microphone. No, as I saw, yep. saw a question about. You can come up here, uh, Firas. Right? You had a. You can stand up and introduce yourself. <laughs> Thanks. There's someone right there. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks guys. Uh, this was, you know, quite an informative discussion. Uh, for us, Maksad, uh, Global Policy Associate and George Washington University. I want to take something that Tony said, which I think is brilliant, and then try to take it a step further. <laughs> <laughs> so staying, sticking to the analogy of the chessboard, and you mentioned that there's a, almost a complete overlap between the Russian assets and the Iranian assets. I see it a bit differently. I almost feel like Putin is playing with Iranian assets. He's trying to cash in on Iranian assets. And let's replay the tape here. I mean, the storyline goes that in early spring, the Saudis and the Turks come to an understanding about the whole Muslim Brotherhood fiasco, and then you have the formation of Jesh al-Fatah, which brings together a coalition of rebels that then takes most of northern Syria, at least Idlib province, puts a lot of pressure on the Alawites area, maybe you know, closer down to Damascus. Qasem Soleimani, the commander of the Quds Force, shows up in coastal Syria and says, await my response. Right and allegedly then takes a flight to Moscow, mm -hmm. right? So one can argue that that response 
came together in the form of this Russian intervention. Okay? So I wonder, my question to you is, are we overstating Putin's influence or Russia's influence in Syria and the degree to which they could affect that outcome? And in answering that question, also help me think through yeah, uh, yeah. what happens if we just leave them, let them fester? What happens if you know, the Jesh al-Fatih and some of the other rebels begin to take pot shots at Russian soldiers and Iranian assets, and suddenly we're not so interested and keen in engaging Putin, i.e. crowning his military achievement by giving him a diplomatic victory. What happens if we just let them fester? Uh, Tony, you want to start? Sure. Yeah. I agree, but I mean, what I meant by overlap is that, is that basically, you know, whatever elements of power that Putin is bringing, he's also riding on forces on the ground that are that are Iranian, or at least pro-Iranian or Iranian allied. So yeah, definitely. Which is incidentally exactly what we're doing, okay, in Iraq. I mean, that's that's the game that we're playing in Iraq. Right? We give the air power, the intelligence, and so on, and the guys on the ground are Qasem Soleimani's guys. Now, uh, a, a variant of what you said is that maybe when Qasem Soleimani appeared in that area in the coast, because uh, when when the Turkish-supported rebels moved in the northwest of Syria, they were on the entrance to the coastal area, which could have taken then Latakia, and then Putin's dreams would have gone down in flames, mm -hmm. right? So Latakia uh, is, is vulnerable. Um, but you could argue that the Iranians first went by themselves because there was a lot of uh, Hezbollah guys and sh uh, uh, Iraqi Shiite militias that were pushed up to, to the Idlib area, uh, uh, and they got uh, beaten up tremendously. Uh, so, so maybe both needed each other, in a way. Because it's different when you have Shiite militias on the ground, and it's very different when you have Russia come, up, come in and set up a, a military uh, base with, uh, with uh, attack uh, jets and helicopters and, uh, and the entire thing, right? Of course, in their mind, it's not only about Syria, but it projects a completely different image of, of power. Because now, if you're, going to, if you're Jaish al-Fatah who's going to be hitting them, then Turkey is hitting. Russia, and that has repercussions. Now, again, goes back to what I said about Israel uh, earlier. It's one thing, the Israelis, that wouldn't be the first time they hit Russian assets in Syria and humiliated them in Syria. Go back to 1981 in Lebanon and so on. Uh, it's one thing when you're doing it in the full knowledge that the United States is behind you, and another thing when you're left holding the bag by yourself, not only unsure of what the United States, whether it will come and help you, but almost positive that it will come against you. <laughs> because the entire, if you look at the campaign, I know the, Bush, the Obama administration talks about the pushback against the Iranian axis in the region. If you look back, actually, we've had a systematic policy against Turkey, not against Iran. We've, we've held them account, because who, the guys that they're working with are Islamists, Ahrar al-Sham. We were about to sanction Ahrar al-Sham. Okay? Uh, so we have actually frowned on the, their choice of local assets and worked to really screw up royalty, royally their security environment, whether it's through the PKK, through the Iranians, and now through the Russians right on their border. Right? So I think it's very... I, I would totally agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. If we were playing the old game of the Cold War and the proxy, you know, let... Uh, Boris, I think, sent me an, an email today that there's a poll in Russia of 14% approval of uh, uh, Russian ground troops uh, in Syria. Good. Test it, in a way. But 
you know, those are the old ways of the 19th century. Old ways, you mean like, you mean the United States arming proxy forces to take on the Russian proxy forces or uh, yeah. Russian forces? Uh, uh, in the, with, the, with the Cold War, I meant. Okay. I mean, uh, that's of how we conducted ourselves in the Cold War, which apparently we don't do anymore. Mike, did, were you going to say something too, or did you want to? Uh, yeah, just, a, um, just that uh, there is, one could argue, I, I don't know that this is exactly what happened, uh, but it was striking to me in the, uh, at the end of the negotiations on the, on the Iran nuclear deal that it was the Russians who quickly ran in and, and, um, and put the ballistic missiles into the mix mm -hmm. in, the last, in, in, in the last stage. It seems to me quite possible that when Putin was sitting there and watching this Iranian-U.S. relationship develop, he said, oh, no, hold on a second, President Obama. I, I, I helped you with these sanctions on Iran, uh, which were very costly to me economically and, and, and otherwise. And now what you're going to do? Mm -hmm. You're going to lift the sanctions and you're going to reach in and grab Iran as your ally? No, 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 no. That's not the way it's going to work, right? And so bef before they raised the ballistic missiles, they, uh, he, he um, released the hold on the, um, the anti-aircraft batteries, then he, then, then he helped them in the last stages of the negotiations, and then the minute the negotiations ended, they're cooperating together in, in Syria. So you, could, you can interpret it as well as a kind of Russian-American Russian um, uh, competition for the, uh, uh, for, for, the, um, for the Iranians. And on the ground, look, the, the, the force they put there isn't that great. Uh, two, maybe 2,000 men. 2000. Not 20, all combat, actually. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. So... Uh, and and the Iranians and the the, the Iranians and Hezbollah and Assad they're going to want to pull them in deeper and they're going to they're going to try to embroil them further and and, and it's going to be a challenge for Putin uh, his public doesn't like the idea that much so it's it's going to be a challenge for him to define the mission narrowly so that he doesn't end up in a huge in a huge quagmire all that's all that's very true, but it just it just shows you how little force yep. how little force he had to apply in order to get a, a, in order to get an enormous benefit politically um, uh, and 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 otherwise from it because because we left because because we uh, because we're we're giving everything away at bargain basement prices. Hannah, would you like to add something? Yeah, to I that? just wanted to add one very small point on this idea that it's going to be such a huge problem for. President Putin, that he only will have 14% of his people who will approve of having boots on the ground in Syria. I think we should really remember that the Russian news media does not work the same way as the American news media. Sure. You know, we, they, they do the same types of polls about do you think there should be Russian boots on the ground in Ukraine, and a very similar number of people say yes, you know, only, you know, only 14, 20, 25% max. That doesn't mean, of course, that Putin hasn't oh, put yeah. troops on the ground. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he's just, because everything's controlled by the state there, because media is controlled by the state, he can hide those things from oh, his sure. people just as long as he wants. So I wouldn't it's put... It's bizarre you can even get like, that many people to say why the number shows up like that in any case. It, yeah. A lot of it has to do with the way the questions are asked. Yeah. Um, no, no, I, I didn't mean to... Of course, he can very easily imply, uh, uh, ignore it. My point is... To use it as a as a, as a sort of a launching pad. It's like, yeah, of course. If that if that if he wants to be embroiled in Syria, good. I mean, that's that's the idea of how you do proxy war 
to, sure. to raise the price for him. What's the price now for him? He's lapping up real estate left and right, and the Europeans and the Americans are coming to coordinate with him. So it's kind of the opposite of that. But it's, it's yeah. the money question for him sure. at the end of the day. It goes back to this question about oh, it's, oh, I see what the, the, the oil, and mm. he needs the money. Sure. He's already spending money on, on Ukraine. He's now spending much more money on Syria. Sure. The financial reserves have been dropping. They're still at a reasonable level. He can hold out for a while. But yeah, along well, that comes back to what you were saying also about uh, about getting sanctions, getting sanctions. Precisely, precisely. Syria. Interesting. Um, this gentleman right here in the in the third row, fourth row rather. Yes. I'm uh, Hussein Abdul Hussein with the right. Um, now, since the Russians have their assets and their jets uh, inside of Syria, uh, many are suggesting that uh, a no-fly zone. Uh, would have, have become uh, uh, complicated. So uh, what would you guys advocate if you are in the president's shoes? Um, a, a few steps. How would you deal with, with uh, Syria and Putin? Would you not talk to Putin? Would you give man paths to, uh, to the rebels? Uh, I don't know. Whatever comes to your mind uh, Han- at this point. Hannah, do you want to start this? And then that's a good question. Thanks. I'll actually, I'll, I'll, I'll punt and pass this one to Mike. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, I would... Um, I would start, uh, I would take a, a leaf out of his book. Uh, and um, uh, do you take a leaf out of a book? Take a pa- I take a page take a out page. of his book. You turn a leaf, you take a page. I take, take a page a out of his book um, and establish a position in, in Syria. Um, my understanding is that we're now, we're now pulling back with the Jordanians from supporting the rebels in uh, uh, in in Dara in the south, I I, I would uh, I would build them back up. I would work with the Turks and I would work with the um, and and I would work with the uh, with the Jordanians um, and I would uh, build up a position of strength from which it's possible to negotiate with him and let uh, put him in a position where he realizes that his position is absolutely untenable. Does, I wouldn't go to for uh, directly attacking him. Okay, well, not directly attacking, but doesn't that anyway? Put you on the road to possible conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would go on the road to possible conflict, but uh, but I would calibrate it carefully as I went along. Tony. No, I mean, it, it's interesting to observe how we don't know yet if this is what the regional players are doing or if it's just happening this way. But it's interesting that uh, the minute uh, Netanyahu came back from Russia, and despite the stop, because the Americans put pressure on the Jordanians to kill any movement in, in Dara. Nevertheless, there is movement in Kunaitra now. Uh, and they're pushing, they're pushing out to clear out the last remaining pocket of Assad slash Hezbollah in the northern tip of Kunaitra, which would then open the door towards, towards, uh, um, uh, uh, towards Damascus. And this happened as Israel struck targets of the Syrian military there right after uh, Netanyahu came back from... Now, are these exchanges of messages? Is just a, or sort of delineating spheres of, of operation or not? We don't know. But it gives you uh, an example of how you could potentially start moving. But then the idea of of um, of, of attacking him or not attacking him, uh, this is Latakia, right? I mean, this is this is regime-controlled territory, and we are supporting the rebels against Assad. Uh, and uh, if that means lobbying uh, a bunch of uh, rockets onto that area and, you know, look, you know, your planes are there. 
Right. Sorry, your planes are in the wrong place. Well, can we come back? Uh, to, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, or an Israeli strike that hits in Latakia, for what, what, instance, a shipment towards. Well, I'm, you know. Well, that, that's one of the things that I was going to say, since yeah. it's something we were talking about before. So far as the Israelis were a, uh, a a major Cold War ally of the United States in the Middle East, and certainly I don't think this administration sees it like that. But certainly, uh, it's obviously a role that the Israelis are very comfortable with. It's a role that many American policymakers are with. I don't see why, I mean, if, if you want to move in some sort of forces, I don't see that, why not using the Israelis? And if Putin comes like, yeah, I know, they're, boy, they're crazy, aren't they, those Israelis? I don't see like why, you know, why not use them as a way to push back on Russian influence in Syria as well? The Israelis can play a role, but uh, first of all, um, uh, I, I'm not sure that they want to play that role that, right. you, just, mm -hmm. that you just mentioned. Um, and um, they, they're defining their, they're, they're defining their interests there much more, much more narrowly. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, we, the United States, we want to build a new order in Syria. That, that has to be, I think, our vision. Um, and the Israelis aren't in the business of building new orders in Arab, uh, in, in, in Arab right. countries. They can, they can have a role to play in, in the process and so on. But um, you know, in, in the end, Israel is a country of. Uh, you know, eight million people, six million Jews. Uh, how much can they do in that in that regard? How much do we want them to do? That? No, but the question was whether the United States will resume a, a very clear place behind any such regional that, movements. That is the mindset. That is the mindset we should have. We right. should see we're ourselves. We're not doing that We right should now see ourselves no. as. We should see ourselves as the um, um, as the leader of a coalition right. yeah. in the in the Middle East, a coalition that has a lot of diverse elements that don't get along very well. But we are the leader of it, and we give every we we set the strategic goal, and we assign everybody roles and missions in the in the coalition. And the job of the coalition is to impose costs on the rival right. coalition, which is headed now by the Russians right. and the and and the Iranians. Yes, it's not the Cold War anymore. It's not a zero-sum game. There are areas in which we actually have overlapping interests with the rival coalition. So all true. They're still the rival coalition, and our job is still to impose costs. Right. I mean, but I mean, also, like, it's interesting to re return to the issue of the French, right? Although they're not capable of doing this, but to, to just give you a sense of where their mindset is still headed, it's like they want to discuss the no-fly zone with the Turks. Just mm -hmm. the other, just yesterday, he said right, uh, that, right. that I, you know it's time to do this. So they're not recoiling in the face of a Russian uh, flexing of muscle. Right. So there is willingness to do it if there is that a sort of a, a lot. Yeah, we have a lot to work with if we right. if we if we if we if we do a paradigm switch and we right. and we start thinking in terms of coalitions again. So um, I, want, I wanted to let these oh, yeah, two guys actually fight it out on the local stuff, which is why right. I punted on the question. Yeah. But there, I, I do, you know, I want to talk in, just very quickly in terms of what we can do with the broader U.S.-Russian relationship. And I think some of it is, is actually reasonably simple stuff. If, if I were advising the guy in charge, I would have exactly in mind what you said about oil prices, about the Saudi Arabia problem. I'd say, look, let's lift U.S. Uh, bans on exporting of U.S. oil. Let's approve the Keystone XL pipeline. Just to send... Yeah. No, but no, no, just, I, but I not, and, and I don't approach this in a domestic policy way, but I approach it in a way that right. would say we're trying to send a message to Vladimir Putin that we're actually in this game to play it. And it's things like that. I mean, no, I probably wouldn't have advised them to, to meet with, with Mr. Putin yesterday. I wouldn't reward what he wants is, is recognition as this sort of 
international, you know, great international leader, and I wouldn't have given it to him. I think I you're think forgetting that, uh, that Josh Ernest tweeted that Putin was begging for the meeting. He was begging. <laughs> yeah, and then, then Putin said that we were the ones begging for it. There's a nice little spat about who asked for the meeting, so I, I don't believe either side. But, you know, the fact that there is that spat says to me that uh, things are a little bit uh, more tenuous than, than they would like us to believe. But I, I think there's a lot of things that can be done at the... Even with Turkey, by the way. I mean, absolutely they have with Turkey. A bunch of tangled interests with Turkey, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So, I mean, but again, all of these individuals, we're, see, we're listing individual regional players and their relationship vis-a-vis -vis Putin and Russia, right? Saudi Arabia, Israel, Turkey. But we're not looking at them as a coalition that has a superpower behind them, yeah. pushing them and pushing these assets and triggering certain areas that would hurt Putin and so on and so forth. So if we're looking at it from a vintage point of a, of a local regional power, it has its vulnerabilities, it has its calculation, depending on where we're going to be and where we're not going to be. Uh, and once we've shown that actually we're actually more on Putin's side than not, then this becomes a moot conversation, I think. Um, I think, um, the, who, where's the microphone? There's a, a woman right here yeah. in the second row, and I think this is probably going to be the last... Uh, question we have time for. Um, <clears throat> Eleanor Bachrach, I worked for USAID in uh, Ukraine and Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and I'm quite dazzled by this uh, conversation. It uh, seems to you. me a sort of Sykes-Picot uh, uh, great game uh, approach to uh, the problems of the Middle East with hard power thrown in. But I'd, I'd like a sort of response to my somewhat more um, simplistic, I guess, uh, view, uh, which, okay, President Obama inherited the situation of two futile wars, at least one of which should never have been embarked upon. He inherited them from the guy who looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul. Uh, never been quite sure what <laughs> he saw. Um, and uh, also bear in mind that uh, uh, the reason we didn't bomb Syria... Ma'am, uh, I'm sorry. We're, 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 if you could ask the okay. question, please. Thank well, you. my question is that, uh, okay, we're overlooking the issue of ISIS and uh, what should happen in Syria, which is very much an ideological, political issue, not just a great powers issue. So um, are we uh, overlooking the actual local dimensions of the problem uh, by uh, positing the great game scenarios? Okay, what, what, that's a good question. Is, uh, I, I take your question to be, is ISIS actually the problem? rather than the strategic picture that we've been discussing here. Uh, that's a, a good question to end on, and we've spoken about that before, so why don't we all, uh, or why don't the three of you, uh, give that a shot? Mike, would you like to go first? Or? Yeah, sure, thanks. And okay. uh, it's, you give, thank you, because you give me an opportunity to plug a paper that we just did here at Huxley. <laughs> uh, how to, uh, how to and how not to defeat ISIS. Uh, and it makes the general point that because President Obama is playing this, um, uh, is not playing the great game the way I would like him to play it, um, he has no Sunni allies. And without Sunni allies, he has no Sunni allies on the ground uh, in that area from, um, uh, from, Damas from Baghdad to Damascus. Um, and he has no, uh, no really reliable Sunni allies 
um, in the region in order to defeat ISIS. And instead, he's aligned himself with Iran, which just likes to kill Sunnis um, uh, on the ground, um, and, so, and, and Assad. Uh, and so as long as, he is, uh, as long as he's aligned himself with these murderous regimes, uh, we're going to have no luck with that fight at all. Thanks, Mike. Hannah, would you like to give that a shot? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I should come at this and say I'm, I'm not a Middle East expert. I come at this entirely from the Russia angle. So the, you know, the, the wars of the past are not something I've spent all of my time focusing on. But I do think that, look, it's, it's really very significant that, you know, you go back to the Cold War history that, that Tony's been mentioning here. And Syria has been a Russian ally for quite a long time. Uh, Assad's father, I believe, flew MiGs in the uh, Soviet Air Force. And, uh, you know, if you, if you look at what Putin might want to get out of this, he does want to maintain that foothold in the Middle East. And he does want to sort of to, to have that ally uh, that he can turn to. And if this gambit is successful, which is a major if, I think what he's hoping is for an Assad regime that will essentially look at Putin as its, uh, its glorious savior, as someone who's always going to be beholden. Uh, to the Putin regime. I think it'll be very interesting to see for Russia precisely how this turns out because that's, it's not a foregone conclusion. You see some people even calling it perhaps, oh, is, is this going to be Putin's Afghanistan? And referring, of course, not to our Afghanistan, but to the Soviet Afghanistan of the 1970s and 80s. So I think there's, um, there's a lot that's still up in the air, and I think we'll see how it plays out. Tony, would you thanks, Anna. Tony, would you like to give it a shot? And then, well, the then, then been, yeah. And then if you, then if if you don't say all the things I think you're going to say, then I'm going to say something. But you <laughs> okay. go ahead first. <laughs> all right. Well, it's very enthralling. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, pressure on you. Yeah. Well, well, look. The, to go back to the initial point I made, President Obama and and Putin are actually in agreement as to who their ground force that they would like to use against ISIS is. Yeah. Right. It's the Iranian guys, as Firas was talking about. It's their assets, that these are the guys who are on the ground. <coughs> now, it's just that now it adds the Russian uh, direct firepower, which, by the way, we haven't yet seen if it's going to even be targeted against ISIS at all. Okay, I mean, it's an open question. Very well might, uh, but it may not. Uh, and then he wants to rehabilitate the uh, Assad army in order for it to continue fighting with embedded Russian uh, personnel. Uh, we will see if that works in any way, assuming it happens, because they haven't performed well at all. And I'm not really sure uh, the idea of Russian training of Assad's forces, I mean, that's kind of a more of a longer-term project. I don't know how immediate that, that will happen, because if you look at it in Iraq with the, with the Iranian guys on the ground, uh, does anybody still hear about the operation to liberate Mosul or anything of that nature? I mean, that forget about it. That's, that's not going to happen. It's on hold. Okay. I mean, uh, th they didn't. They couldn't take Tikrit, which was already a ghost town, uh, without intense, you know, uh, air air power from the United States uh, for them to be able to go in there uh, and basically reclaim a ghost town. Um, you know, okay, you can, you can make an argument that the Russians may replicate that with Assad's army and the Iranians. We will see. I don't know. Um, but the point is that this has proven, this coalition that they want to ride has proven to be a complete failure, uh, uh, first in achieving the direct goal that it wants to achieve, which is dealing a blow to ISIS. But then more broadly, as, as Mike talks about, okay, we've let's say we've dealt a, a blow to ISIS, um, and then what? Right? What happens next? What happens to the other Sunnis 
who are not ISIS, who have been fighting ISIS, who still want to go after Assad and, and, and Hezbollah. What happens to them? We're going to bomb them too? Okay, I'll just I'll give my quick answer. Uh, the administration's prioritizing ISIS over the Iranian access has put uh, Russia on the eastern Mediterranean and has put a soon-to-be nuclear Iran on the border of three key American allies, Israel, Turkey, and Jordan. From my perspective, and we've conducted many panels in that way, and I welcome you to come to more. From my perspective, the Iranian challenge, the Iranian access, continues to be the key strategic threat for the United States, at least in the Middle East, if not more generally. Now Russia has made it even larger. Uh, thank you very much for coming. I look forward to seeing you all again. And thank you to my panelists, Hannah Thober, Tony Bedron, and Mike Duran.